I believe everyone has a story to tell. And I believe everyone deserves a little pampering. Welcome to Manny's with Grannies. I'm your host, Tiffany Marino. Join me while I sit down with a woman over 70 and get to know her while giving her a manicure. Welcome to this episode of Manny's with Grannies. Today, I'm in the home of Gloria. I met Gloria at the East Pass Young Gav Singing Fountain. We got to talking and I loved hearing her story and thought it would be a great Manny's with Grannies episode. So here we are. Gloria, thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you for coming. When we were talking, you were telling me all about your life story. What I heard was so interesting and I would love to hear more about you. Thank you. (laughs) Where should we start? Remember when I met you at the fountain, I said, there's a story that the fountain reminds I, I think of it every time I go there. And I asked if you had ever been to Italy. Yes, right. I've been to Italy, but I have not been to Rome to see the Trevi Fountain. I was a teacher. I had time off in the summer. So my fellow teachers and I would take trips. And one of the trips I took was to Rome. What inspired me to find the Trevi Fountain was a movie that was made in the early 50s called Three Coins in the Fountain. Anybody who's in my age group would remember that. There was a song that went with it that Frank Sinatra sang and other groups. Anyway, it was about three American girls who went to Rome, and they all threw their coins into the Trevi Fountain. By the end of the movie, they all found their true love. I was inspired. So I went to the fountain, and I used Italian coins, and I threw them over my shoulder. You're not supposed to aim it at the fountain. You're supposed to throw it over your shoulder and let the fountain pick where it lands. I wasn't going to just throw one. I threw three. And I made three wishes. And good news is they all came true. Of course, everybody wants to know what the wishes were. The first wish was, and everybody who does this should do it, to return to Rome. And I did the following year. The second wish was to find my true love. And I did. My husband, Stanley Joseph Endress. And my third wish was to become a mom. And that happened also with my daughter, Claire. So all my wishes came true. Of course, I didn't wish to be the Queen of England or anything silly, but they worked. I'd love to hear how you and Stanley met. That is another magical story. Okay. I used to go to this, I call it watering hole, a bar, when I was single in my 20s. I used to go there with friends. And I was always mixed in with other people. They had live music. You know, it was crowded. And every once in a while, a handsome guy would walk past and say something cute to me. And I started thinking about him. In fact, I had dreams about him. Well, one day, there was going to be a mayoral debate. And one of my girlfriends called me and she said, do you really want to stay home and watch a debate? I said, no. She said, let's go back to the bar. So we did. As it worked out, She got involved with other people. She was talking to them. And I was left alone at the table with my drink all by myself. Then in walks this handsome guy in a light blue jacket with a pipe to match. And it was the same guy that always said hello to me. It was like a movie. I looked at him and I just, I knew I was in love. So I got up. I reached out. He reached out. We grabbed hands. And I said, at last. That's like a movie. At last. So he sat down with me, and we exchanged phone numbers and information, and we made a date. And the rest was history. This was in fall. It was October, before my 31st birthday. That's how old I was. See, I knew what I wanted. By Christmas Eve, we were looking at getting our rings. Mm -hmm. And on Christmas Eve, we got engaged. 
What was the first date? We went to a movie. I don't remember what the movie was. He was embracing me the whole time. (laughs) I was living at home with my mother and father. That's how we were in those days, we Catholic girls. And this is in South Philadelphia? Yes, right around the corner on Pass Junk Avenue where I grew up. When we got engaged, then my father intervened. He said, Gloria, I heard about this house for sale around the corner. He wanted to make sure I stayed close to him. And my brother was in the banking business. So he came with me and we came in here and talked to the owners. And they wanted, are you ready? 15000 And my brother said, my sister can't do that. You have to go lower. So we decided on thirteen, and they accepted that. So we signed the agreement of sale. And what year was that? 1972. The wedding was scheduled for that August. So if you count the months, I met him in October. We got engaged in December. And we got the house in around April or May. And we got married in August. We wasted no time. And I have to tell you about my wedding dress. In those days, there was a department store, Strawbridge and Clothier. I don't know how many people still remember that, but they had a bridal department. This was just after the 60s. So the fashion then was bell-bottom sleeves, bell-bottoms, and a pillbox top for my veil. Very uh, modest. My wedding picture looks gorgeous. It really does. After the wedding, they said I could come back with the dress and the veil, and they would preserve them. So I said, in case I have a little girl. Well, I did, but it took a while. And that's another long story. I want to tell you where our honeymoon was. We went to Cape Cod for our honeymoon. We drove there. I don't know how we did it. I can't even imagine driving that far. But we took turns driving. And my car was a Volkswagen. It was a bigger one. And my class named it the Coconut. It was a yellow car. (laughs) So they called it the Coconut. So we drove the Coconut to Cape Cod. And that's where we had our honeymoon. Of course, we moved right into this house. It was already prepared. We did a lot of work on it. We fixed the hardwood. We did some scrubbing. We, of course, had to look for furniture, but it was all ready. So when we came back from our honeymoon, we just moved in, just like that. That was how our marriage began. It was magical. I don't have to go on and on about our occupations. I was a teacher. My husband was a nursing assistant. We were both in the service jobs. We wanted a child, of course. But as I said, I was getting older, and things were going wrong. And unfortunately, within a few years, I had a miscarriage. Very sad. But we weren't going to give up. So in 1978, another October, we were planning everything. It was all supposed to be timed, you know, according to the cycle. And it was all rather, how should I put it, uh, clinical. Let's get it done. So we got it done. But when it was over, this is what I, I remember. And not everybody experiences this. I felt a rush, a hormonal rush, after the action, and I knew. Then, in my head, I'm thinking, I'm conceiving a child, and I was right. Imagine that. So, I went to my gynecologist for a test, and he called me back, and he said, congratulations, go to bed, because I had a high risk because of my history. So, I asked for a medical leave from teaching, and I was allowed to get it. So I got some money. I still got paid, because this was October. I was on leave the whole school year while I was pregnant. My daughter was born on the 7-11. She was a July baby. We took her home, and I was lucky again as a teacher. That was my best choice in life, was to become a teacher, because I got benefits that not everybody gets. So I got a health sabbatical, which meant more money paid, and I was on a leave. So I had two years off from teaching, one for the pregnancy and one for the newborn. So I was with her for the whole first year of her life. 
I felt great about that. And it did her a lot of good. Then I had to go back to work and my mother helped out with the child care. And now my daughter is married with a, a child of her own. And oh, I must not forget to tell you, when she got engaged, I offered her the dress and the veil as was promised. She took my veil and removed the pillbox and she wore my veil. The only sad part was by that time her father was gone. He passed in 2010. She was married in 2015. But how she took care of it for herself, she had a locket with his picture in it and she put it on her shoe. So she carried his picture up the aisle and her father-in-law walked her. When it was time for the dance, I danced with her. And the song we danced to was, I Hope You Dance. And then when it got to the end, we did Jitterbug. But now they have their son. And guess what? She wouldn't allow any other names. No other names but Stanley Joseph after her daddy. My husband once said the happiest day of his life was the day she was born. He was growing up during the Depression. I can't even begin to tell you what he went through. But with her, he was able to recreate the childhood that he missed. They were inseparable. What were you like as a teenager? I was very uh, (laughs) well-behaved. Very well-behaved. You can interpret that as you wish. I was very well-behaved. I was one of the lucky girls that was in the first class of St. Maria Goretti High School in South Philadelphia. It is now a combined boys and girls co-ed school. But when I was there, it was only girls. I watched them build it. Imagine how old I am. I watched them build that school. I went to Hallahan High School for my freshman year. That doesn't exist anymore. They closed it. So in 1954, I started high school. In 1955, I was in Goretti, and I didn't graduate until 58. Our class had the most unusual experience for women. We originated everything. We started the debating, the orchestra, the glee club, the newspaper, the magazine, everything that Goretti had as a tradition, we invented. So imagine what that does for a girl's maturation and creative thinking. Do you think that your education in an all-girls school enabled you to have the confidence to go to college? Of course. Because we were doing all those inventing and things like that, we had no lack of confidence. I was hired by the Catholic school district to teach while I was an undergrad, and I taught for five years in two parochial schools. I was still living at home, of course. So do you want to know what they paid me? Now, this is going to shock your audience. <sighs> my first year of teaching. This is true. 1961, my first year of teaching. My salary for the nine months. Are you ready? $2,000. Before taxes. My first year of teaching, I had 53 children in my class. And my paycheck was $47 a week. It's shocking, but I was able to survive because I was living at home. They knew that. They knew we were all single women living at home, and so we didn't have to pay rent. And we had free meals, so they took advantage. Anyway, I couldn't wait to get my degree. Where did you go to college? Well, here's the other thing. Because we were teaching in the Catholic schools, all the Catholic colleges made it available for us including the boys' schools. See, in those days, there was a lot of gender segregation, especially with the church schools. But because we were teaching and we needed to go to school, they allowed us to go to any school we wanted. So for the first time, women went to the boys' school. So I was one of the ones to integrate St. Joseph's College for Boys, became now 
a co-ed university. My classes there were, of course, filled with guys. And it was very interesting. But I always tell people this. Uh, my education classes were all women until, and I don't know the exact date, but until the Vietnam War. Because you don't know this history. Okay. I'm giving you a history lesson. There'll be a test. <laughs> <laughs> I know there will be a test with you. Yes. You tested me last time. Yeah, I will test you. In those days, it was all drafting. But what happened was the government made a condition because of a shortage of teachers. They said, if you become a teacher, if you go into the education major, you can avoid the draft. You can get a deferment. Well, you know what happened. They flew into that. So I had guys in my education class who didn't even care about teaching. They just wanted to get out of the war, which I don't blame them. I want to tell you, too, that in history, we had another war that not everybody talks about, and that was Korea. And the reason it means something to me is because my husband was only 17. In those days, you had to get a parent to sign if you wanted to enlist at that age because he wasn't even out of high school. And his mother signed a paper. He was in the service and in combat in Korea. I want to mention that because to me, he was a hero. And that's why he got into nursing when he came home. He was trained on the battlefield to assist with wounds. So he came home and he got a job in a Catholic hospital in the ER. And in those days in Philadelphia, we're talking about the 60s, 70s. We had a lot of issues with gang wars, things like that, more than today. So he had a lot of patients in the ER that were gunshot victims. He said he saw more gunshot victims in the ER than he did on the battlefield in Korea. So back to Gloria. <laughs> it was an interesting time. So what happened was because those men got out of the army to become teachers. Oh, did I mention to you that when I moved from the parochial school to the public school, my salary doubled? My last year of teaching in the parochial school, I was making 2600 a year instead of just 2000 They went all 200 each year. So I had up to $2,600 before taxes, remember. Guess what the public school paid me? It doubled my salary. $5,200 for nine months teaching. Not $52,000, $5,200. Well, those guys, when they were finishing their education degrees and getting jobs, they looked at the salary and they said, you think we're going to work for women's wages? See, the culture of that time was women in those days were expected to enter professions only like teaching or nursing, maternal type professions. They were not expected to become vice presidents. And they could get into retail. They could get a job at a market selling or a cashier. But the only careers, the only professions they were expected to take were nursing, not doctor, nursing and teaching. But then because of the integration of guys, everything changed. They couldn't stand those women's wages. You know what happened? The only reason they could get paid more was to start a union. That's how the teachers' union got started. My mother used to work in a tailor shop. They had a union, too. That's because there were men in there. So that's how our union got started. And then the wages went up. But I was one of the pioneers that helped. I remember striking. I remember walking down Broad Street. How did that feel when you started seeing change that you were actually a part of? Oh, it felt fulfilling, of course. I mean, I was able to afford things that I couldn't afford, like a car. Wow, I could buy a car. I couldn't do that before. Do you remember the first car you bought? I think it was a Volkswagen, but it, it wasn't the tiny Volkswagen. It, was it had a larger size to it. And I told you before. Oh, was that the coconut? Yeah, my students called it the coconut. How many years did you teach? All right, let's figure this out. Okay, let's do the math. 
If you count the parochial school, I started at the age of 20 in 1961. I retired from the public schools in 1997, and immediately after that, I was recruited by Temple University to teach student teachers. They wanted me to teach them how to teach science because that was what I was doing for the last five years, only science. So they needed somebody for a science practicum. They asked me to work there, and that didn't stop until the spring of 2016. I was 75. So I started at 20, and I ended at 75. So 55 years of teaching. Yes. That's a long career. I liked it. That's why I like talking to young people like you. (laughs) So 55 years of teaching. You taught a lot of people, but you must have learned a lot through it as well. What's something that you learned about life through all of that teaching? I had some shocks, of course, during that period. See, I came from a decent family. When I was a teacher, especially in the public schools, I saw all kinds of issues that shocked me. Children who were abused in all kinds of ways. That was upsetting. I saw the social issues that I didn't see. In my neighborhood, we were almost all Italian families, and they were families. There was divorce and and carrying on and all that. They were solid families. As a teacher, I encountered all other kinds of lifestyles. So... It was an interesting education for me. I wanted my public school students to experience the arts. So I would write musicals for the children. I would base it on a play like Cinderella or uh, The Wizard of Oz and others. I was making them perform a lot. Did the school have a budget for you? No, no, I paid for most of it. No, the school didn't pay for it. But I had the help of the music department and the art department. They helped me with all kinds of scenery and with uh, music, of course, the singing. It was a group effort. We made it happen. I have one little boy. I could tell he was abused, and he was fighting with everybody. He was in the stage crew of The Wizard of Oz. So I said to him, you can't, I can't let you continue with this play because you're, you're getting into trouble too much. You're fighting with people. And you know what he said? He said to me, could I have another chance? Well, with that, how could I deny it? So I said, all right, just that's just it. One more chance. Well, he started to behave. Okay, good. Well, then the play started. And you know how the last scene of the play is when the wizard gives out the three gifts to the friends of Dorothy. Well, the little actor who played the wizard forgot his props. He forgot the three gifts. So in my head, I was sitting in the front row. I said, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to save the play and my little boy. So I ran back and I spoke to him and I said, you have to save the play. I said, the wizard forgot his props. Please. Now you're dressed in green. I said, perfect. Go outside, march like a soldier. Salute. Give him his bag of props. Salute and come back like a soldier. Can you do that? He said, hmm? So he did it. And of course, the audience thought it was part of the scene. And the little wizard was so relieved. So he got his props and the scene continued. So the play was saved. Well, then I left the school. I was going to another school. And I came back. I was invited to a party. And at the party, I met the reading teacher. And she started bragging about this little boy. Now, this was like fourth grade. And she said, he's making so much progress in reading. It's wonderful. I went, oh, good. He got some of his confidence back. Then she said, I'm thinking of entering him in a rhetorical contest. So then I left and I went home. Didn't think any more of it. There'll be a question after this. Are you ready? A real question. So a few months later, I read an article in the Daily News. He was writing about, of all things, the rhetorical contest. 
And the winner, of course, you know who the winner was, my little boy. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the question. Okay. What was the title of his winning essay? Think about the whole story I just told. Yellow Brick Road? Nope. <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. Green Soldier. No. Okay, tell us. From the beginning of the story, what, was, what, was, what did I do for him? Oh, Second, second chance. chance. That was the second title. Second Chance. The title of the essay was The Second Chance. And how his teacher enabled him, because of that, he was able to save the play. And what does that mean to you? Well, it shows me the power of teaching, that you can save a life. I'm not the only one that has done something like that. There are many teachers that give children second chances and counsel them. That's part of the job. It's not just C-A-T, cat. It's helping them find themselves, rescuing. I'm 38, so I'm almost 40. Yeah. Do you have any life advice for me? Okay. <laughs> well, you're already married, so I can't advise you on that. I'm sure you're happily married. I could tell. Well, you can give me some marriage advice if you have it. I could always use some help. In front of your husband? You want me to tell you? <laughs> How did you get through tough times in your marriage? Well, I loved my husband, and I didn't want to ever lose him. And he adjusted himself to certain things. He was very good at that. We had issues. I mean, I didn't like when he was finished his work, when his last job was over. And he was doing part-time work at a bar, and I didn't care for that. But that ended. People go through stages in their life. Women and men both go through many stages, and you have to be prepared. We go through stages or passages. In fact, there's a book called Passages. Sometimes your partner is changing or you're changing, and you have to be patient with that and not just expect everything to go your way. What is your age? Do the math. I was born 1940 in October. 83? I'll be in next month. Happy early birthday. Thank you. How does it feel to be 83? Old. <laughs> no. I'm physically good. I'm physically fit. I'm very fortunate. I'm a cancer survivor. I don't have to tell you all that. That's too sad. But I am a cancer survivor. I take no medicine at all, which is rare in my age group. Part of it is genes. The cancer came because a doctor prescribed a hormone for me for a menopause. So that's a good piece of advice. Watch out for stuff like that. She warned me that it was carcinogenic, but I should have said, well, then why are you giving it to me? I took it for 10 years. I had a wonderful menopause. No problem at all. felt wonderful. The 10th year, I took a mammogram, and that was my cancer. Don't ever take Prempro for menopause. That gave me cancer. Doctors make mistakes. I had a second cancer because probably I was already primed for it, but I had a second cancer a little over, almost a year later. So I had two breast cancers. I survived. Did your outlook on life adjust or change after surviving cancer? No, I'm still the same person. I haven't gone through any severe changes, but I don't think about it. I just do what I have to do. I want to talk about your writing. Oh, we are Facebook friends. And I know that you write for the, is it the South Philly Review? I write every week, a letter or an op-ed to the South Philly Review for nothing. I don't pay me. I do it to keep my brain working. Writing is very good for the brain. I mean, one advice, writing, puzzles, music, art, all those things keep your brain fresh. And I think it helps. You have to be careful what you eat. I don't abuse drugs. I don't take drugs at all. I never did. And I don't abuse alcohol. How did you always have the willpower to not give in to any of those temptations? Common sense, first of all. I knew they were dangerous, so I never did them. I never did anything in excess. 
I also see nothing wrong with going for talk therapy if somebody needs it. Sometimes it helps to have someone listen to you and give you advice. I'm not against that at all. Have you been in therapy yourself? Yes, especially when getting over grief and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What's something from therapy that stuck with you? Keeping active, keeping busy, keeping a journal. I'm just very fortunate. I've been loved all my life. I've never been traumatized severely. I had some trauma, like all children, but I never had anything that was too severe. My best blessing was that I came from a wonderful family. My parents were great to me, wonderful to me. And I had a wonderful marriage. And then I had my beautiful daughter to raise. That made me happy. And I fulfilled all my dreams. I think that's a good place to end things. This was a really nice conversation with you, Gloria. I thank you for opening up and talking with me today. I really enjoyed hearing about you. Thank you. It was therapy. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Manny's with Grannies. I hope you enjoyed learning about someone else and maybe even learned a little about yourself. 